This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark. I am joined here with a Richard Register. Richard is a theorist in ecology, urban planning, and urban design. He is the author of several books on the subject and founder and president of uh, EcoCity World. Uh, Richard, it's uh, great talking to you. Nice to talk to you, Robert. Thanks for calling. Richard, you coined the term uh, EcoCity. Can you talk about when you coined the term, the basic concept of an eco-city, and what are the key aspects that an eco-city must have? Well, okay. Uh, The term came from discussions back around 1969, probably, when I first had met uh, Paolo Soleri a little bit before that, and I was working with people at Paolo's experimental projects in Arizona. He's an architect philosopher who came to the United States from from, uh, Italy, and uh, he called his study of uh, these compact pedestrian cities uh, arcology, and his idea was to put the entire town in a single structure. And I don't think, and some other people associated with this body of ideas uh, believe that we have to have a single structure city, like, say, an American Indian Pueblo, but that uh, more conventional shaped cities that are uh, that are not in a single structure, but uh, that are close closely associated throughout the structure of the city itself, one might say in a more three-dimensional as compared to sprawled out pattern like suburbia, uh, that uh, the term arcology from architecture and ecology uh, wasn't perhaps the very best term for it. And so somewhere in the 70s, I began using the term eco-city instead of arcology because I believe that uh, common language like ecological city is much easier to communicate than starting a strange word, at least it seems sort of strange to us who are using it, arcology. So in any case, uh, eco-city uh, is just a kind of generic term for an ecologically healthy city. Now, what is that exactly? Uh, it uh, happens that cities starting basically after the Second World War became vastly extended horizontally across the landscape covering agricultural land and natural landscapes uh, in enormous acreage all over the world, but starting mostly in the United States. Uh, Cars being manufactured by Detroit, uh, and uh, the first real experimental city uh, for really sprawling out was Los Angeles, famous for its uh, very sprawled out development. I happened to be living there in the 60s and through the 70s, part of that decade too, and so I was right in the middle of looking at this very flat, inefficient city and thinking about a city that would be much more compact, which would be very pedestrian-oriented, and so on. So the ecologically healthy city basically has a more three-dimensional form, and as Paolo Soleri, the philosopher-architect, used to say, uh, the city is a complex living organism, and therefore it should take after normal complex living organisms like ourselves, our own bodies, the other animals we share the planet with, and so on. And so when it comes to organizing complex functions, uh, three dimensions makes a great deal of sense and scattered out like a sheet of paper doesn't work very well. And so cities on that very fundamental basis uh, have some really serious problems. So the theory behind eco-cities is that we can actually design cities that instead of being a problem in in nature and in, uh, uh, in relation to agriculture and so on, they could actually uh, be producing a solution all the time. In other words, we could have cities that uh, that actually build soil. We can intentionally preserve other species through all sorts of design alternatives, 
uh, like public parks that make room for native planting and so on, like opening up creeks, which is one of my favorite things to do, and, uh, and then building a more uh, compact pedestrian town, city, and village. So that's sort of the basic idea. There's many, many ideas within that. Lots of activities have been going on since the late 60s, actually, long, long time. And they're all in this kind of galaxy of ideas and projects uh, that are eco-city oriented. So uh, Paolo Soleri, he invented the concept of, well, he, he didn't invent it. It goes way back to ancient times, but he sort of invented, reinvented it for the modern era. But he had a specific project in Arizona called uh, Arcansanti. Can you talk more? Arcosanti. Can you talk more in detail yeah, about that specific friends. project? Yes, I lived there for a year once, and I was uh, the first person there uh, building an actual, you know, physical structure rising up off the surface of the land, which was nothing more than a, and then a uh, two by four and plastic foam. Uh, shelter for the first bags of cements and barrels of nails and so on for the project. But that was in 1970, a long time ago. And I've been there many times since and lived there for a year once when I was working at Arco Santi and at the time writing about it and trying to help with publicity and starting uh, my first book, which I called Another Beginning and was uh, published shortly after I got back from, uh, self-published in, in fact, uh, shortly after I got back from Arco Santi in uh, 1978. So in any case, I have a fairly long history of the, with the place. Uh, I knew Paulo fairly well. He has a number of people who have worked with him much more closely than I have, who's actually have lived there and who are now head of the project. And the project, again, is called Arco Santi, a small town developing in uh, Arizona, right about the middle of Arizona between Phoenix and Flagstaff. So many of the uh, ancient cities going back to ancient Mesopotamia functioned as arcologies, and you could even make the case uh, for uh, medieval cities that were within fortresses to a degree. So there is an overlap between the future and the past in this regards? Yeah, I think so. And how did the arcologies in, say, um, ancient Mesopotamia work? Well, they wouldn't have called them archaeologies in the first place. They were just uh, what people normally naturally would do in clustering together. Uh, you have to make room for uh, all sorts of different activities. And most, uh, most theoreticians and scholars uh, thinking about the history of cities consider the oldest ones to be even older than, than uh, Mesopotamia. So there's some debate. For example, Çatalhöyük in south-central Turkey where I've been also because it's kind of like a you know sort of like a mecca to me to go uh, go to this place that was sometimes regarded as the first city was actually 10,000 to 30,000 people, <clears throat> but it didn't have a lot of differentiation in the structures of the city. People would have their shrine, their workshops, uh, which would be one corner of one of their rooms where they're making small tools and sculpture-like items and clay to be fired and uh, dyes to, to paint on the walls of the building and so on and so forth, uh, they didn't really have specialized spaces like, like churches or temples or uh, marketplaces uh, very much. They just had a, a big structure you would enter from above, go down ladders into the various cells of this, this big structure, and, uh, and have a general sort of meeting between people up on the surface. So that was Chantalhuyuk. Uh, but by the time it became specialized, it was cities like the city of Ur, one of the oldest on the planet, with a fair population in the Sumerian civilization. Uh, the arcology idea started looking at ecology itself, the science of ecology, as applied to the way we build our buildings and our cities. And so it was involving a much more complex sort of arrangement than the primitive cities, and uh, it's sort of a rethinking, you might say, in a modern context for the cities that are many times larger than anything that existed in Mesopotamia. So can this uh, concept of an archaeology or an eco-city be adopted on a larger scale in, say, a major metropolis or megalopolis like the Bay Area, L.A., or New York? Definitely, that's uh, one of the one of the terms I came up with rather late in my <laughs> my my time working on ecological cities. I said to myself, "Why didn't I think of this a long time ago?" 
is the term ecotropolis, which I started using around 2009. I've been doing this work since uh, you know the early 1970s, basically. And so this was uh, something that I thought of a little bit late in the game. But in any case, uh, imagine a metropolis that we would call it today, or a megacity, or a cluster of cities that grow together into one general area. People talk, for example, about Boswash, which is Boston to Washington. It's almost like one gigantic city. We'll take a, a metropolitan area, say like the Bay Area, which I live in. I live in Oakland, California. And there's about 9 million people in this whole Bay Area from the southern edge uh, down uh, south of, uh, well, on the area of San Jose all the way up to Santa Rosa. It's almost like one scattered town. But take a gigantic metropolitan area like that and imagine the city centers becoming uh, pedestrian but very dense uh, ecologically tuned cities that have pedestrians, bicycles, these new scooters and things that you see all over the place these days. Uh, and some transit, but virtually no cars within the city, maybe between cities, but not inside the city, the town, uh, or very much inside the village even. So the city centers would become the new eco-cities, the uh, district centers, the larger centers, like you often have entertainment centers or health uh, zones, like we have something we call Pill Hill here in Oakland, which is basically a cluster of doctor's offices and hospitals and clinics and so on. And you have these districts that can become then sort of specialized eco-towns. And what used to be little villages can become, I mean, what used to be little neighborhood centers could become eco-villages. And they'd all be very unique and different from one another, but they would be fairly close together with open space between. So you can imagine a transition where you start opening up the creek system like I've been working on here in, in the Oakland-Berkeley area for a long time, uh, bringing creeks back, removing buildings that are on top of the creeks uh, over a period of time. And you can do that with zoning in what they call willing or deals. In other words, you don't use eminent domain to kick people out of their property and pay them, uh, pay them uh, compensatory rates for their house, but rather you have a deal wherein if people want to leave, the funds are already there, and uh, you can buy their property and recycle the building materials as possible, and then open up the waterway. And you can also have a bicycle footpath along one side, maybe on the other side, maybe a totally natural environment, and the water runs through with the, you know, the the fish, the frogs, the snakes, and everything else that live around water, and the plants, of course, and the birds, etc. So that's a great educational facility and an augmentation of the transportation system that you can get as you start opening up landscapes and you can be expanding community gardens uh, into actual productive gardens and some of them being profit-making little farms in the city and so on until you've got a, a totally new infrastructure. And that would take probably you know, 30 to 150 years to pull off really serious eco-city transitions. But all along the way, you're saving energy, you're bringing back biodiversity, you're creating educational environments for the children and for the adults, too, for that matter. And so it's a pretty good transition strategy. And that I would call moving towards an ecologically healthy metropolis, metropolitan area or an ecotropolis. So that's the largest picture you can imagine for moving in that direction. Yeah, I'm from L.A., and I know L.A. has this massive network of creeks, but most of them are actually underground, and they function basically as a storm drain. So it'd be, it would be really amazing to bring them to ground and then have like a green belt along long way. But the thing is, they go through some of the most expensive real estate in places like Westwood and near Beverly Hills. So that would be... That would be an amazing project to do, but I don't know if there are any significant plans for that. Well, there aren't, as far as I know right now. It's hard to communicate the general concept in general. I write a lot of books on the subject, and and they're not super popular. A few people in the field of uh, you know architecture and city planning and environmentalists with an urban sort of orientation like my books, but uh, they're not really super popular. Uh, they're not bestsellers on the New York, uh, you know. New York Times list or anything, but uh, the ideas are there and uh, and they can be utilized. But I'm not sure they're it's going to happen very rapidly. In Los Angeles, in particular, there's been a long time effort to 
uh, more naturalized, you might say, the Los Angeles River. You know, it's the scene of many car chases down there in this concrete culvert, and they've been bringing back uh, native plants and so on along the river. But you'd need, actually, people to have a very clear idea of what the transition amounts to. And in doing that, you're up against one really big problem, which is that people, quote, love their cars. You know, they say people have a love affair with their cars. Well, as long as we keep designing cities around parking spaces and around uh, convenience for the automobile, uh, we're going to have a very difficult, a very difficult time actually creating ecologically healthy cities. In China, where I'm actually fairly popular, and my book is actually read by by uh, several million people supposedly, uh, that is not the case in the United States. I wish it was, partially because I never I don't get paid in China, whereas I might get paid in the United States. But in any case, in China, they actually have an eco-city program, which was influenced largely by me and by the fact that uh, they've adopted my terminology and they call their project an eco-city set of policies. But the people there are crazy about automobiles, too. For example, I was in a car, uh, taxi cab, going from the Beijing airport into the hotel I was staying at at the time, a Chinese fellow in the back seat with me, and I started talking, well, what do you do? You know, I do this and that, and what do you do? And then I said, well, I work on ecologically healthy cities. They don't really exist yet, but we have ideas of what they would be. And I mentioned there were problems with automobiles. We like bicycles and transit and urban orchards and things like that. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, if I can't have a car, how can I get a wife? And it was dead serious, and I thought back on the times when I was in high school and used to cruise the hamburger stand uh, to pick up girls, as they would say, you know. And so it's, it's very fundamental. The automobile has worked its way deep into the psyche of, of most countries in the world. The United States, largely starting with Los Angeles, ended up taking the lead in transforming the better city into something much worse all over the planet, which is an automobile-dependent uh transportation system, but it's not just the transportation system. The system fits the, the device, the transportation device. Just as with rails, you need to have a train and a rail system and stations. The same thing applies that you can't have cars without sprawl and you can't have sprawl without cars. It's an intimate relationship with the kind of city we want to build. And the automobile scattered city covers vastly more land, I'd say probably uh, five to ten times as much land as you would need if you went to a, a real eco-city, really thorough eco-city reshaping of cities. So you talk about the difference between a three-dimensional city and a two-dimensional one. By a two-dimensional city, are you talking about sprawl, or is it more complex than that? It, it's less complex than that, the whole idea. Is the three dimensions makes complexity possible. Now, what you get with uh, sprawl, with low-density development over vast landscapes of, of area, is something that's full of complexity that's sort of dismembered. In other words, it turns into sort of complicatedness. You know, lots of things that don't necessarily jive together, so you, you have the distances so far apart in many of the functions of the city, you need a car. And once you create sprawl, you're, as I would say, uh, uh, you are addicted to in the sense of structurally addicted. The structure that you have built has made you completely dependent upon the automobile. So you have to actually move towards centers-oriented development. In other words, the suburbs could take on their own little eco-city cores. They could uh, have car-free areas to start out with that can get larger and more three-dimensional. And three-dimensional, not like great big gigantic blocks of, of buildings, but rather more like terraces and intimate details in the buildings. Uh, you can go up to, say, 10 stories average for a fairly good-sized town uh, and do it in terracing with beautiful views looking out from the structures and, and nice sheltered areas and native plants all the way up onto the roofs and the terraces and all sorts of things. The design alternatives are fantastic. You know, just just uh, many, many different ways of organizing cities so that they feel both cozy, intimate, and at the same time uh, have a fair population in them. So that requires, though, that you think through a whole set of design uh, changes, and I illustrate all this, especially it's found in my book called Eco Cities Illustrated. And, uh, you know, there's dozens and dozens of different kinds of cities in there and towns and villages that uh, are not built around the car. 
So uh, it can be done. Uh, there are cities that are much better than others in terms of, terms of eco city uh, eco city features, but there's no place I know of where everything that really fits the whole living organism of an ecologically healthy city actually exists anywhere. Some eco villages may be pretty thorough, uh, getting down to cultural items like you would <coughs> have, say, general store. Uh, some manufacturer of things, mostly arts and crafts probably, uh, living space, agriculture, uh, pres preservation of natural features, and so on. On the village scale, some of the eco-villages probably get pretty close, but they don't have the, the model of, say, attached solar greenhouses in a multi-story structure that could then be a model for much larger projects. So I'm looking for things uh, around the around the size, say, of about four city blocks minimum that could be what we sometimes call eco-city fractals, a fraction of the whole living city uh, that actually functions as a whole living organism in its own right. In other words, an eco-city fractal or an integral project, we've also called it for many years, would be a project that uh, has housing, uh, offices, a little bit of manufacture of something, uh, small-scale probably arts and crafts kind of things, uh, education, food availability, some food growing, some protection of uh, natural species, relationship to the sun angles and the energy flows where you happen to be. For example, in the temperate climates that are fairly far north and south on the planet, solar greenhouses attached to the structure is a really, really good idea. I've been in the Galapagos Islands a few times, two times actually, in the last six months. And down there, it's very hot. The sun is directly overhead at the equator. And so they have a lot of rooftops that create shade, and they let the breezes flow under the rooftops to help cool everything. So that's a passive design, you might say, passive energy design for, for complex structures that tend to, to board the eco-town and eco-city scale from the village scale. So you pull all those pieces together and you have a, a really powerful model for something uh, that could, could be applied on all scales, even the very large uh, mega city scale. So that's the kind of work I try to do and uh, I'm looking to try to help encourage the building of models like that. And currently the most interesting project I'm working on is in the Galapagos. Yeah, I saw your newsletter from your trip to the Galapagos and I saw a photo you took of this hotel there but I was thinking uh, that would be like perfect for here in Santa Barbara because it would sort of it would blend in with the style, but it would be a step in the right direction away from kind of kind of from suburbia. But it would it would blend in with the aesthetic here because the thing about Santa Barbara is there it's an aesthetically pleasing city as far as like the Spanish colonial architecture downtown, but it's it's. Uh, it's better than like most American cities, but at the same time, it's still fairly car-oriented and spread out. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because uh, I think that you're right, that uh, the old Spanish style here actually has some elements that are quite nice, and some of them come from North Africa, by the way, like the use of adobe. That's actually not a Native American uh, specialty. It actually comes from... Uh, from North Africa and from uh, the so-called Kasbah Belt, which runs all the way from from uh, uh, the African West Coast all the way through to the Muslim world, uh, you know, uh, Pakistan and so on, uh, they build with with mud brick and uh, up to ten stories high, by the way, in a town called Shaban in Yemen, which is pretty fantastic. <laughs> ten stories of adobe, you know, it's got to be pretty good, strong adobe. But in any case, uh, the Spanish styles uh, work really nicely, and the, the uh, style I saw down in, in the Galapagos is similar to that, but it's, in addition, quite colorful. Uh, there's a sort of a Latin American theme around, around really nice, bright colors that work really well together, and they seem to have that down really well. And the imagination, the kind of railings they have and detailing and the top ridges of the buildings, the kind of shelters to, to uh, protect people from the sun down there and so on are really imaginative, really great stuff. And so they have a, a step in the right direction, but we have to take it a little bit farther to really make a powerful model for eco-cities. So you make the case that uh, density is more ecologically sustainable 
I've actually read somewhere that if New York City were all single-family homes, its population would cover the entirety of uh, New England? Well, that's, I mean, it depends on your model. If your model is Phoenix, that's probably actually true. I mean, uh, New York runs on about half the American average of energy and land for, you know, cities all over the whole country. But if you compared it, say, just to Dallas, Fort Worth, or Phoenix, or Los Angeles, you'd probably find that uh, that it's uh, extraordinarily uh, more energy efficient, land efficient, and so on, even than, than people would normally compare. For example, I've heard in many places said that uh, the European city takes up uh, about one-half as much land and uses about one-half as much energy or as much as one-fifth as much land uh, and one-fifth as much energy. But I'm pretty convinced that since cities have been impacted by cars there, too, if you went to EcoCity real standards, if you actually uh, built thoroughgoing ecological cities and skipped the car entirely for in-city transportation, you would probably be saving 90% of the land now covered by cities. Uh, I'm pretty sure that would be accurate if you could sift that out because when you get three-dimensional, you can create all sorts of really imaginative things. Don't think in terms of these gigantic projects you see in China where there's just all the massive, massive buildings all look the same and, and they go on for several blocks. They look very, very unfriendly, but break that up into terrace kind of pyramid-type structures where there's a lot of surfaces facing outward, uh, the opportunity of, of moving very vigorously into much more biodiversity, you know, natural biodiversity is landscaping uh, into and up onto the, the city. So there's there's all these design alternatives that very few people have looked into. I've done it in my book, Eco Cities Illustrated. Uh, but And you see more and more hints of that, by the way. It's getting fairly popular among architects to put green walls and green roofs on buildings and to have some pretty interesting interesting buildings, some of them with bridges between structures so that it has a three-dimensional interlacing of activity. And that's the kind of thing that I think is the wave of the future. We should go with that and expand upon it. Can you explain the concept of uh, eco-city uh, zoning? Well, zoning is how we, in an organized manner, generally lay out cities and see the development progress. And zoning covers everything from the shape of the buildings to the height limits to uh, the functions that go on inside it and so on. So it's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, it tends to be, especially in America, very conservative. Uh, everybody wants to have a say in it, and most people are pretty much addicted to the automobile, unless you get into some really downtown situations and so on. So it's uh, it's very hard to get zoning that's very powerfully promoting eco-cities. Now, I have what I call an eco-city zoning map and a mapping system, which is simply to find the major centers, the downtown centers, the major district centers, and the, and the neighborhood centers, and move them all towards ecological city design while opening up landscapes uh, between those centers with creek restoration, with expanding community gardens, expanding public parks and sports areas and recycling areas and so on, so that you have open space uh, developing at the same time you have these centers becoming more compact but also more uh, more sensitively organized and designed. And that takes more money, it takes more thinking and so on, uh, but we need to save that money uh, by not building freeways and freeway interchanges and everything for the automobile. And one might even think that if we have the world's health in mind, we would uh, start uh, etching away at our absolutely gigantic military infrastructures all over the world, and especially in the United States. Massive, massive waste based on people's fear and, and desire for being powerful and telling people what to do and so on. So if we get away from that wartime mentality, uh, that's great. If we get away from the car mentality, that's pretty big too. And uh, maybe we could make a, a really graceful transition if we had a clear idea of what we were going to transition to. My most recent book is called uh, <clears throat> called uh, World Rescue and Economics Built on What We Build. And I think in economics, the missing piece is knowing what to build. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried building all sorts of things, and he, he pulled us somewhat out of the Depression, and the Second World War came along, and everybody got very focused as to what was needed to win the war. 
uh, they were much less focused on how you build a better a better country, you know, better cities, better towns, villages, and so on, and a healthier natural landscape. For example, he had soil reclamation projects for agriculture. Franklin Delano Roosevelt also had forestry projects for replanting forests and uh, and working for a better natural environment as well. But we need that sort of thing in a really big way now as a, as a whole international world effort to uh, have a healthy future. Do you see uh, just building skyscrapers as a solution, or do you think that's a, a way too uh, simplistic? I think that's pretty simplistic. I mean, you do have a situation where the, sci- the skyscraper centers of cities run fairly uh, you know, much more energy efficient, land efficient, and so on than you than the sprawl of a Phoenix or a Dallas Fort Worth or something. Uh, so that that's sort of a starting point. But uh, the interconnection of things three dimensionally, not like big spires that rise off of a two dimensional surface, but like the integration, uh, following what I call, by the way, the uh, the anatomy analogy. In other words, uh, living animals have anatomies, uh, and we're all three-dimensional. We're not shaped like pieces of paper. That's for extremely simple organisms to be like that. Uh, so the three-dimensionality is absolutely essential, and as I said, I call that the, the uh, anatomy analogy. But cities should be seen as complex living organisms. They function very much like complex living organisms. They're complex. Uh, they're culturally living. You know, it's a collective life of the organisms within. But then that's fairly similar to most of our bodies and even, say, trees that will have lots and lots of other living things in them, like we have bacteria within our own bodies and so on, and the trees are filled with birds and insects, etc. So if you look at the three-dimensional model, it's quite a, a powerful model to think through with some kind of real sensitivity and a desire to have cozy, intimate places but also beautiful views and compactness of uh, function and so on. And the vision of simply having gigantic buildings rising up very, very tall is, uh, is not quite the idea. Uh, may be a little bit more efficient, but whereas New York might be twice as energy and land efficient as a normal city, like Manhattan would be, um, if you actually got rid of the automobiles entirely on the inside and rethought the whole thing for the various various functions that I'm mentioning now, I think you would find that, uh, that it's far, far healthier. The buildings would look more like sort of pyramid structures with interleaking, interleaking parts, the structure of the towns, rather than being these, you know, a whole zone of needles going vertically into the air placed in a situation that's mostly two-dimensional. In fact, if you fly in an airplane and look down at almost any modern city, uh, almost anywhere in the world, you see the modern city in the center is quite dense, but it's a very, very tiny fraction of what you see as the overall city. For example, if you fly up above Los Angeles or San Francisco and you look down, you see that the, the core of the city is only 2 or 3% of the whole thing, which is minuscule. And so the, the idea of, of reshaping that from a flat structure with a few spires in the center to actually go in with three-dimensional design all the way down to small village scale, I think is a very, very profound idea of how to have a much healthier future. Is connecting uh, skyscrapers by uh, either uh, sky bridges or tunnels a solution? Yeah, it's part of the solution, but it doesn't take it all the way there. You need to have the basic concept of the eco-city in your mind, uh, the uh, anatomy analogy, as I say, and then you can start redesigning chunks of the city some places have wonderful historic history, like in the west of the United States, you have a lot of plazas largely built on the Spanish tradition, <clears throat> and where the plaza really functions really nicely, and I can think of several cities in Northern California that have very nice plazas. Uh, my solution there would be to have what I call an off-center center. In other words, you let the plaza stay as it is, but you look at a really good area very close or even attached to the plaza where you'd make something considerably more dense and and taller and, you know, housing uh, 10 times as many people, say, than it is housed within one block of the plaza, and that covering only a couple of blocks. So you could have these these inset pieces of the ecological city that could become very good models and could serve 
many more people, uh, but they're not tearing out the historic centers. The historic centers have a lot of a lot of good uh, to give our culture, so keep them. But nearby, uh, create the EcoCity new centers. I'm sure you're familiar with the Embarcadero Center in downtown San Francisco, which uses uh, sky bridges over the streets, and there's a lot of uh, courtyard uh, gardens. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, John C. Portman's work. I know a lot of architectural critics like to kind of bash him sometimes, but I'm a big fan of his work. And would you say that the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco and some of uh, Portman's other projects implement aspects of the archaeology? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, it's uh, there are 16 blocks uh, united by uh, two, one and two uh, bridge systems. You know, on, on as many as two different levels at the same time, going across the streets, and in some places just one level at a time. Uh, these are literally bridges from one one area to the other. So that's part of it. That's uh, it's a step along the way. As far as uh, retrofitting uh, suburbia goes. You have a lot of these uh, car-oriented suburbs that are full of uh, track housing and strip malls that are really uh, awful places. But then you also have places, well, where I live in Santa Barbara, it kind of fits this model. But since you're from the Bay Area, I'll mention places like Marin County, uh, towns in the East Bay, like Orinda, Lafayette, and uh, Danville. And these are places that have like charming uh, small towns they have a lot of a kind of a semi-rural feeling, a lot of nature, and a lot of positive attributes. But at the same time, they're primarily uh, single-family homes. Is there a way to implement a lot of these ideas but without destroying the kind of the charm of the nature and the small towns? Well, the sprawly part has actually destroyed nature pretty thoroughly. I mean. It's kind of a phony version of what's sort of natural. I mean, you have your decorative plants, you have your lawns, and you have your robins coming to visit and so on, but it's basically all built on driveways and garages and freeways and freeway interchanges and enormous parking structures in the cities. Like here in Oakland, even, all these new buildings they're building, and it's amazing. Within four blocks of my house, there are nine construction cranes working right now. And uh, a year ago, there was only the first one. I mean, there's massive development going on now in the core of, of, of Oakland, but it's not very ecologically oriented because there's enormous amounts of, uh, of, of cars being planned for and being built for. In other words, these buildings have enormous parking lots associated with them. For example, one that's, that's uh, slightly more than one block from my house, which I can see out my window, is 22 stories, but the first four stories are for cars only. It's a big parking structure. The tower is only one-third the footprint. That means that it's as if the parking structure were 12 stories tall if it were to cover the same footprint as the housing tower. So in other words, it's 40% for cars. And so that's building the wrong kind of dense center. It's really a, a very bad mistake. Uh, it's just going along with the old car infrastructure thinking, even though it's, a, it's in a denser downtown. So the density is part of it, but you have to be dealing with the the complexity, which means the interrelations of parts making sense. In the suburbs, a lot of these suburbs have uh, some small pieces of uh, very cozy places to go, like little pedestrian uh, walkways and centers, and people are now putting in, as they are in San Francisco and in a lot of towns, actually, these parklets where you give up a couple of parking places and you make a nice place on the streets where people can sit outside and enjoy coffee or, or dinner or something. And that's really good. That's headed in the right direction, but it's not much. In the suburbs, you could have these off-center, much higher density things, but you would best, in my opinion, tie that in with removing some of the development that's on top of creeks and some of the development that's next door to uh, large community parks and so on, so that you're expanding, expanding the open space, bringing some agriculture back into all these zones that have been covered by cities. And actually, cities have covered much of the best agricultural land in the world, especially with sprawl development, because that's where people went in the first place. That's where they got good food and good agriculture, was where they started their cities. And then when they spread out with their cars, they destroyed most of the agricultural land. So uh, you can start by, by finding your centers, 
uh, building them up literally in some degree, but integrating the structures so that there's a lot of diversity coordinated. In other words, so that you're looking at the complexity in small areas. You know, the housing close to the shops, close to the, the jobs, the uh, offices, close to the, the water that flows through your, your area, wherever you happen to be, if you have a, uh, an area where a, a creek or a, or a waterway flows through, and so on. So there's all these little steps along the way, and an EcoCity zoning map is exactly the best way to, to know where they are and to start working on it. You'll find people panicking, though, when they take a look at the map and say, oh, my God, you're saying that there should be a little more density near my house, or, or you seem to be slating my area to disappear. Well, relax, because it's going to take decades to do this, you know? <laughs> and in the meantime, all the steps are in the right direction. More bicycles, less cars, uh, more uh, organic farming near town and in town. Uh, just It goes on and on. More uh, solar greenhouses, the use of more terracing, bridges between buildings are quite a bit of fun, kind of like you know, children's playground equipment, and on and on and on it goes if you want to use your imagination. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I'm sympathetic to this movement called the YIMBY movement, which, in opposition to NIMBYs, wants to uh, increase the housing supply through density. But my one critique I do have of them is that they're dismissive of aesthetics, and that's, that is one of the factors people do become NIMBYs because they just have this sort of a visual of like all these uh, ugly condominiums coming up. So you can get like really creative. And I just think of like a lot of these different uh, suburbs, like uh, places, obviously places, wealthy East Bay suburbs, places like Marin County, you could do amazing things. So you could have like a very compact village that could either be on the kind of European model or even, I mean, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but maybe on the model of like a like a kind of a Tahoe uh, ski lodge, and then that would be very compact and charming, and then that would be surrounded by uh, creeks and oak woodlands. So there's a lot of ways to create a really amazing place to live without destroying the charm. So I think it's important to put these ideas out there because you get these people who live out in the suburbs and they hear people talking about density and they just have this horrible... Uh, like visual image image of, of their community just being like overrun with like ugly condominiums. Well, I think it's easy enough to to draw pictures of the alternative, and I have a whole book with I think about 180 pictures in it that I've drawn myself. You know, I mean, they don't have to be these big blocky things. That's uh, I, I spend a lot of time communicating with architects. And I just don't pick up on these ideas that much. Uh, you're getting more and more that are headed in that direction, though, with, with so-called green architecture with, you know, lots of plants on the buildings and beginning to get into terracing rooftops and bridges between, you know, clusters of buildings and things. And that's all headed in the right direction. Now, you could imagine a place like Mill Valley, for example, which I know fairly well, that could take four or five blocks on one of the slopes there, maybe facing the sun, so you'd be having uh, passive solar energy. Uh, available and carve out two or three new blocks in an area where there's, you know, now uh, maybe ten houses on a on a slope right next to the center. So it wouldn't be necessary to destroy any of the redwoods. Well, you, uh, probably yes, you would, but not very many. I mean, what you're doing is you're creating a model by which you can withdraw from from thousands and thousands of houses all over California that are in the way of. Of uh, you know that have been built on the destruction of natural environment, so you're going to lose some of the natural environment while you redesign. That's just natural, just like you're going to lose some of the suburbs, which is good. Uh, but you, as you do that, the strategic gain is gigantic. If you're moving from a city that covers ten times as much land to one that covers one tenth as much land, you're going to be seeing much much more agriculture and nature coming back to the city. So you have to take a look at the entire picture. On the very fine grain, you're probably going to lose a little bit of natural environment. Uh, but in the much larger grain, you're going to be gaining much, much more. Yeah, I think what you mentioned with illustrations, uh, your illustrations are excellent because they present a very uh, clear visual that is aesthetically pleasing. And I'm, I'm an artist also, so I can appreciate that. My, my critique of a lot of urbanists is that they view things in a purely utilitarian uh, form. 
Well, I I don't know. I mean, uh, a lot of architects are are trying to create art uh, pieces. You know, I mean, it depends on which architects you're talking about. There's some that operate like factory designers. They're just cranking out stuff for people to live in, with you know, and what works economically and makes a relatively fast profit is what they're looking at instead of what takes some real real sensitive thinking and and getting into ecological as well as you know economic uh, thinking. So there's challenges all over the place, but uh, you don't have to build that way. You don't have to build great big boxes that look alienating. You can build things that have a lot of a lot of detail and a lot of uh, nice areas for people to enjoy. I mean, the design alternatives are actually incredibly numerous. I mean, I, I have a book, and the only place where I have anything that looks like a car is just in a couple of illustrations how cars are a problem. And all the rest of uh, what I do is drawings of the alternative. And uh, people generally think they're pretty nice drawings. They're a bit on the cartoony side. And I turn them out kind of quickly because I don't have much time. I don't have much money either. And uh, and get these things out as, as raw ideas so that people can see the arrangement of spaces and, and get a sense for the intimacy of spaces that can be created rather than just giant blocks of... Uh, you know, condominiums and so on. I actually agree with the people who fear that kind of development. You know, it's not a very healthy kind of development, and what I put forward is very different. There's a movement called a New Urbanism, and uh, they're a major step in the right direction, but do you think they're too rigid about things like height and density? Yeah, absolutely. I think that they're they're onto it in a small scale, and they started out being called uh, the new traditionalists, and uh, you know they were going to traditional solutions, which were, in American terms, uh, more compact towns like you imagine the mill the mill towns of uh, of New England, you know, much more walkable, old brick buildings, a mill uh, on a river somewhere that turned out some kind of industrial product, and they didn't have cars when these towns were built, and so on. And so those are kind of nice, and, you know, why not preserve those and so on. But uh, we're talking something much, much different and much more generally applicable uh, and that takes into account that we have transformed our cities already by using the automobile and cheap energy and cheap land, for that matter. And so now we have this, this great big effort to, or we should have this great big effort going to redesign the cities the uh, new urbanists, I think, have taken a step in the right direction, but they started off with a height limit of, of just, say, four stories, and a lot of people who want to defend the nice European walkable town and all that in Europe like to defend a four-story or a six-story height limit, or maybe in, you have in, uh, <clears throat> in Paris, uh, I'm not quite sure what the limit is there, Washington, D.C. is 11, but in any case, uh, <clears throat> there's these very sort of rigid ideas of, of the height of buildings. But uh, one of my thoughts are, one of my thoughts is that if you built thinking in terms of you're building a little hill, you know, you can make something look like a hill that has life on it, like plants and so on, uh, that uh, is not very intrusive. If you're really worried about the big blocks of housing, of big condominiums at 15 stories and so on, which bothers me too, then that's one thing. But if you want to go to thinking through uh, sort of a more three-dimensional hilly landscape, but then you enter into it, on a, and on the inside you have beams of light falling into these interiors that could be quite lively and, and exciting, and you have terracing where people can go up and look at, at views. You have from a distance, you can look at these towns, and they look, uh, they look sort of human-created, but they also look very much like part of the landscape. That can all be done. Can you talk about the ECOSA Institute, which is something you're you're involved with, which is trying to they're basically doing what Soleri did in Arizona, but on a smaller scale. Well, they uh, ECOSA I'm not really associated with, but I know some of the people there, and I like them, and uh, they're they are an offshoot of some of Paulo's work and thinking. In fact, what they're planning as their main center is a very compact, which you might call very, very tiny arcology. It's basically a, a new office center for them and for uh, for a lot of the work they'd be doing. It looks like in the illustrations about five stories tall and even has uh, inside a sort of a upper roof area places for birds to live where they can enter into the structure through little portals that are designed specifically for various species of birds and 
taking nature up into the building and and so on uh, and it's a single structure building so it's a kind of a model of one sort of design of one of Paolo's arcologies though extremely extremely small and it's not part of the the city of, of uh, Prescott which is very close and which is where they have their current main office maybe only office I'm not sure I think it's their only office right now but in any case they've got this land out in some beautiful landscape which is an interesting place to build something uh, it looks like to me it's going to be a, a model of a, a extremely compact development a design for that which is very interesting so I support that I think it's a really good idea to build it uh, but it can't get to a large scale as you could by dealing with zoning in a, in a city itself or doing a project that's as I would say you know an off-center center you know something that's in a town that has all the associations of a of a living organism going on within it, the organs of the organism, you might say, but that is actually part of the town so that you have the economics and the and the people around, the customer base, the tax base, and so on of the city itself. Uh, and so that, I think, is a much more powerful way to go, to try to transform the existing city, more so than to make a model somewhere out in the countryside. But I think it's a good thing to be doing there should be dozens or hundreds or even many tens of thousands of experiments headed in that direction uh, if we're actually going to have a very healthy future. <clears throat> and I'm convinced that cities are the largest cause of, uh, of climate change and a lot of other horrendous things, uh, species extinction and so on right now. Most people would say, well, but you know, you look at a transportation system like with cars and so on, and transportation in the United States is it's only something like 27% of the energy, whereas buildings, when you include also their building and so on, the construction are about 31% of the energy. So, well, but wait a minute. When you build a building and 40% of the building is parking for the cars, and the fact that you've built a building for cars keeps the freeway system going, you're not dealing with the fact that the city structure is very deeply involved in all this. And so if you redesign the city, you can go way, way beyond uh, the savings. You can imagine by, by saying categorically, oh, you know, the building actually uses more energy than the transportation system. That's a very artificial way of looking at things. If you get the whole systems and look at the whole city, then you realize that by moving from the car city to the city of bicycles and pedestrians and, and a little bit of transit, you're talking about an absolutely phenomenal savings in land and energy and, and uh, potential for saving species. You've done a lot of work in uh, China, and I know in uh, China they are building these uh, self-contained uh, eco-cities. I know also in a lot of the oil-rich uh, Arab countries they're doing the same. And I think with the Arab countries it's more as a way for the elite to escape the heat of the desert, and in China the elites to escape the the massive pollution. Is there a concern that these uh, self-contained cities are more beneficial as a sort of escape f for the elites from the problem of pollution, or do you think they can address the overall pollutions for the majority of people in China and the global problem of climate change? Well, I'm I'm not sure they're very successful at being as uh, you know contained structures separate from the other institutions and the infrastructure. For example, Mazdar, which I've been to twice in uh, Abu Dhabi, is supposed to be one of these models. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting in its design in many ways. It's uh, pedestrian oriented, but then it's built one story higher because underneath the whole thing is a transportation system with little pods. They say that there's uh, there's no cars there, and that's actually correct. And I think the idea of trying to design without cars is a good idea. What their little pods are is a whole electronic system under the ground of the city, uh, little four-person, uh, very, very small car-like objects that, that you get into and you program them a little bit and you end up zipped around underneath the building and you pop up a whole story. And so the whole city, the whole little town, which uh, isn't as large as it was originally planned to be, uh, is uh, is interesting. But uh, you know they could have done it for bicycles and one story shorter, and uh, they'd have to redesign bicycles a little bit because they they wear robes there. It's very hot, and inside the more compact town, though, it's it's quite a bit cooler because you have a lot of shade in there. 
But in any case, uh, there's some interesting design things that the rich elite are actually doing. And so we could pay attention to those and put money into projects that benefit people other than just the rich people. So the rich people's experiments maybe are okay, but I think we have to look at this and say, hey, we have these gigantic problems of inequity that, that also exist. Why can't we just design for everybody? Well, everybody can vote in the United States to build ecological cities. We can all vote into our city governments uh, ecological city mapping and start working on it, start changing the zoning code. We could all do that. Poor people as well as rich don't want to do that. Uh, many of them want to keep doing exactly the same thing they've gotten comfortable with, and I understand that myself. I like my my coffee in the morning, and I'll read the newspaper in a cafe myself. You know, I have my habits, and we all do. But we have to also say, well, look, what can we do that's going to make a big difference here? And can we apply that broadly? If it's just for a small elite, it's not broadly applied. And so that's not the solution. The real solution is to figure out how to, to broadly apply the ideas of ecologically healthy cities. And if we do that, then the auto industry doesn't have to collapse. It can transform into something that makes streetcars and trains and and bicycles and little you know skateboards or whatever they have these days that are powered by electricity. I mean, it's just a, a transition is all we need. Uh, and if we think it through, it can be very, very healthy. But we have to be flexible enough to look at other possibilities beyond what we're already used to. You wrote a book titled uh, Eco City uh, Berkeley. Were you working on a specific urban planning project in Berkeley? Yeah, I wanted to change the city. It didn't work so well because of the NIMBY process there. I mean, it's uh, it has an interesting situation in that it's a very well-educated city, but when you get right down to it, they don't want to see any zoning changes. You have to get up against some really intense uh, pressures. Yet, they think it through partially, and they have recently started building some much taller buildings towards the center, but they're very massive, and they're overscaled, and they don't pay attention to the sensitive aspects of eco-city design. It's just these great big sort of monster new buildings. Uh, four or five of them are going up right now in Berkeley, and they just, uh, they're just they dense, but they're not designed with uh, eco-city soul or heart. I mean, they're just, uh, it's a massive kind of thing stuck in the middle of the city. And so Berkeley got it wrong. Uh, whoever the city people are, I, I gave up on Berkeley, by the way, I moved to Oakland back around 2002 because I couldn't get my major eco-city design changes implemented there, and so I became much more internationally oriented. So by now I've spoken in 36 other countries. I've been to China 25 times and Korea 15 and, uh, you know, five times to about a dozen countries all over the world. And so, you know, why waste my time with Berkeley if people are insisting on taking just the, the crudest form of density and putting that in place and skipping all the things like the creek restoration projects that I, I really love doing there, you know, and the expanding of the, uh, the whole eco-city idea. So I gave up on Berkeley, moved to Oakland. I like it better down here. <laughs> you know, I live two blocks from this wonderful lake, and... And I get on BART, and I can get all over the Bay Area very easily. I don't have to own a car here and so on. So anyway, that's just, that's part of the story. Uh, if you can't get to the zoning changes, then uh, you're stuck with, with this partial thinking that can put the wrong kind of buildings. This may sound kind of like an odd question, but I noticed on your uh, previous podcast you mentioned something about external glass elevators and I just had to kind of bring that up because uh, I've a, I am like a big fan of those. Yeah, well, I think I think enjoying your city is really is really a good idea, and uh, and turning parts of your city into almost playgrounds for adults, I think, is a really wonderful idea. So the glass elevator is really fun, where they actually exist and people can handle a little bit of elevation. And I'd even suggest small-scale elevators, like, say, three and four stories. Uh, I'm recommending this in the Galapagos, for example, for some new projects I'm promoting there, more or less, you know, as, as possible models. Not that it's going to get built anytime soon, but it might. Uh, I am putting a lot of effort into it. But even just uh, to go up two or three stories and to have a view around to get over, say, in the Galapagos, over the line of mangroves that are on the 
you know, uh, sort of in the way of your view if you're in the main part of the small town that's the main town in the islands. Uh, then you get a perspective, and you can look out over the beautiful waterscape and see the other island that's nearby from one city, one town, or another. And that's really good, and uh, so I promote that. And uh, if you do get up on top of the buildings there, and at the, at the Charles Darwin Research Station, there is, by the way, a really nice cafe, and you can get onto the roof of that, and there's a sunshade over that that's very nicely sculpted, so you can be in the shade on top of the cafe there and stand there and look around, uh, nursing a coffee or something if you want, and look out at the view. And uh, it's only one story high, but it gets you up high enough that you're uh, on a bit of a slight rise anyway, and you look out over the landscape and you see the turquoise water in the foreground and the, the teal-colored water out towards the horizon and another island off in the distance. And it's pretty spectacular. In most places, you get up a little high, and you and you do get really nice views, sunsets and sunrises and so on. For example, I lived in Berkeley for almost 30 years before I ever ever saw uh, the the sunrise on the hills or going down over the water, because everything's two stories high, you know, three-story trees, and it's all flat. Until they built a building downtown called the Gaia Building, which I helped design the rooftop of that building. Uh, and actually lived uh, on the top floor of the building, so I could just, you know, take a short walk and look at the sunsets and sunrises. You know, I never saw that in Berkeley. And then you had, in the meantime, people complaining, oh, you don't want to build anything over four stories in Berkeley because then everybody loses their view. That's not true. They didn't have a view in the first place unless you lived on the hills of Berkeley, and then, then if someone had a tree in your way, you were fighting them for your view. Or if you had a solar collector, you didn't like the shade that the guy's tree next door was causing. Well, some of those problems are worked out if you actually have a, the more pyramid-shaped uh, structure where people get a lot of use of terracene and, and can actually have some nice views. So the, the glass elevator is kind of like a fun uh, you know, an amusement park ride, but why not? If you're going to have elevators anyway, um, just get in a glass elevator and enjoy the view to a higher level where you get a much better view. And also, the glass elevator, I think, uh, from a distance is kind of sparkling in the interior of your little little view of the hill where you've built an eco-town center of some sort and, uh, and could look kind of challenging and interesting from the outside, too. Yeah, I think they were really popular with hotels in the 70s and 80s, but I don't know if they're as popular with new construction. Well, the eco-city idea has not caught on, and that's one of the reasons why they're probably not popular. Because if you went whole-scale or full-bodied eco-city, all these pieces would then be seen as part of the normal infrastructure of what you build if you want to have all the pieces together. See, that's what I've been looking for all over the world. And as I said, you know, I've spoken in 36 countries now, and, and I've visited a few countries I haven't spoken to, of course. But in any case, uh, you know, I've never found a place where all the little pieces are together, except maybe a couple of eco-villages here and there. And that's so small scale, it isn't really that good a model. So uh, it, anything that approaches the scale where you could have a model for, for full-on full -on cities, uh, the glass elevator, I think, is really a fun aspect and part of it. Just like the terracing is a major part, uh, rooftop gardens and so on, uh, bridges between structures to unite people three-dimensionally, as you pointed out, exists in, uh, in the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco, for example. All these things are mainstream eco-city ideas, and if you don't get there, uh, you're probably not getting to a full-on eco-city. I know you're not getting a full-on eco-city model project started. I mean, one thing I find kind of ironic is that in the city of Las Vegas or the Las Vegas region and Las Vegas Strip, it's a major ecological disaster, with, not just with all the sprawl, but you think about all the food and resources that have to be brought in to serve the casinos. But what's fascinating is, on one hand, it is an ecological disaster, but the central part of the Strip does serve sort of as an arcology because all the casinos are connected by sky bridges and if you stay if you stay at a hotel or resort there you have all your amenities in one structure so it's kind of fascinating that a place known for being this uh, ecological catastrophe which it is 
does have some aspects that could be emulated in a archaeology. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's really, there's so many ironies, there's so many exceptions, there's so many bizarre things that people do. But when you average them all out, uh, the models and the application of the EcoCity features is is pretty rare. And it pops up among rich people, it po- pops up among gamblers and people who use prostitutes, you know, which is legal in, uh, in Nevada also, and so on. I mean, you find these, these bizarre things going on, uh, many of which are quite interesting. And uh, if you know how to select from what's actually happening, you discover that uh, there are cities all over the world that have every single aspect of an ecological city you could ever imagine uh, extant and functioning. But pulling them all together and getting people to say, hey, we have a big problem with the automobile. Hey, sprawl is incredibly damaging, incredibly damaging, and deal with that, and you've solved about 70% of your climate change problem right off the top. Why aren't people who are climate scientists talking about that? Well, it's because people simply haven't focused on the the structure of the city as being really important, but it is. So, uh, you know, these exceptions exist, and I think it's very interesting that you've identified some, like some of the structures in in, uh, Las Vegas and like the Embarcadero Center in San Francisco, but in Las Vegas, the the whole project's insane. I mean, being in the middle of a desert with a big city like that, burning energy, and using a lot of water from fossil water way under the city, which is only going to last so long, and then it's gone. You know, it's like burning your your candle at both ends, as they would say. It's like it's the same mentality that would would use fossil fuels as quickly as it could, so you'd get maximum energy use, and then suddenly destroying the resource base entirely, which is probably going to happen in 100 or 200 years if we don't. Uh, you know, not that any of us alive today or be, be alive then. But if we don't build an ecologically healthy city, we're not going to have much room for many people on the planet at this rate. Uh, people who are interested in this talk, uh, this, this uh, radio program, uh, my books are available. Uh, it's my way I, I have of, of trying to talk to people in the most depth. I've spoken all over the world. But uh, this is the way I think is, is best for actually thinking through the sort of ideas I think are critical for a healthy future. Uh, and people listening in can find my books on the internet rather easily and, and get them if they want. Uh, Richard Register, it has been an excellent show. Uh, so much uh, crucial infor- information and uh, interesting topics. Uh, thank you so much for being on. Well, you're welcome, and good luck with your show as it goes on to many other iterations. And I wish you well.